Okay, so I'll be reading the same passage for us again, Matthew 5, verses 1 to 20. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. I just want to say thank you so much for the music team because, um, you know, when I came to the end of my last session again and I had to pray, I was struggling to find the words um, because God's word is just so rich and he, he touches the deepest part of our souls and I often can't find words to know really how to respond. But then wonderful gifts from the Lord are songs that people have written that actually give words to what our hearts want to say. And um, I've had that experience again this morning. So I just want to particularly thank the music team for their song choice and also for the way in which they've served us, um, the way in which they put those words um, to music and enabled us to, to join in. So, so far... On the cursed world smothered in the dark shadows of corruption rises the brilliant prince of poetry, God's king, beating with blessing. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. The blessing of Abram and David dawns as the son of God opens his mouth 
about the kingdom of heaven. Who are those blessed? Whose is the kingdom of heaven? In our second session, we're going to see they are the people of light. So first, we need to take a quick look at the darkness from Jesus' sermon so that we can better understand his light. The rest of Jesus' sermon is filled with warnings. If you've been in this church, I know you've been reading it. In chapter 7, he ends with the warning that the way to destruction is wide and many enter it, but the way to life is narrow and hard and few find it. That his hearers will encounter false prophets, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. That there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, and even do miracles in Jesus' name, but of whom the Son of the Father in heaven will say, Depart from me, I do not know you. In chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus ends with the call to hear these words in order to build their lives on the rock instead of on shifty sand so that they won't fall in the stormy floods of life. So, we need to look closely at the words of this sermon, beginning with this poem. Who are the few entering And how did they find the narrow path? Who are these people whom Jesus truly does know? Who are building on the bedrock of blessing and to whom belong the kingdom of heaven? Each section of Jesus' sermon is a warning against hypocrisy. You see, the darkness of distraction that comes from God-forsaking hearts is also a darkness of self-deception worn as outward masks of pretense. Forsaking God also leads to an outward facade, a self-deceptive keeping up of appearances. The darkness that brings destruction also brings self-deception. So what does Jesus' light look like as it dawns in our hearts and lives so that we enter the kingdom of heaven instead of forsaking God, walking and building as his people of light on the bedrock of blessing, not as hypocrites hiding in darkness. Let's look carefully at the detail of this king's poem. Blessed you. Did you notice the change in subject from verse 10 to verse 11 at the end of his poem? The subject changes from those to you. This is a change from a poetic description of the people who are blessed, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, to actually ascribing that description to his hearers. Look at verse 10 with me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then concluding his poem, Jesus changes the subject to verse 11. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here, Jesus moves from the poetic description, blessed are those, to actually bestowing the blessing on his hearers. The descriptive poem becomes a personal pronouncement from the poet on his hearers in verse 11. Pouring out his poetic blessing on who? Those who are? persecuted. 
Who are the Prince of, Pe- of Poetry's people of light? They are Jesus persecuted. Now this is not what we associate with hashtag blessed. Persecution is not at the top of my list. When last have you taken a selfie of persecution and posted it on Instagram with hashtag blessed? In verse 11, Jesus says, you are the blessed when you are persecuted on my account. These disciples sitting at Jesus' feet, if if they are persecuted, insulted, and falsely accused because of Jesus, they are the blessed ones of the poem in verse 1 to 10. His people of light. Did you notice also that the descriptive persecution for righteousness sake in verse 10 is actually persecution for Jesus' account in verse 11? So the description, the, the descriptive persecution for righteousness in verse 10 is not a general righteousness, you know, persecution for standing up what is generally right, you know, general justice and righteousness against human evil and corruption for the sake of human society in general. The kingdom of heaven blessing becomes yours when you are persecuted for Jesus' righteousness. Remember that Matthew has repeatedly shown that Jesus is the son who will reign on David's throne, as in Isaiah, who will uphold his kingdom with justice and righteousness. This righteousness that brings persecution in the poem is the righteousness of the king's reign, the establishing of his throne. You can also see it in verse 12. It's like the persecution of the prophets before them. So we need to be very clear, looking closely at Jesus' words. The blessed, described in the poem, to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs, are those who have come to sit at Jesus' feet under his reign, those for whom his rightful reign has been lit up by his word, who are then naturally persecuted for his righteous reign, for his word, for what his word calls us, by the God-forsaking world around them, just like God's word-bringers before him. The persecution is actually not surprising if you've read Matthew 1-4, to read the first chapters. But the measure of being blessed is very surprising. Hashtag blessed belongs to those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. This is how Jesus chooses to make his descriptive poem personally measurable in the lives of his hearers. Blessed are those who are Jesus persecuted for Jesus' righteousness by the light of this king's reign, for Jesus' word. They are the people of light to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. Are you blessed? Does the kingdom of heaven belong to you? Synonymous with, are you persecuted for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' righteous reign? Is Jesus' reign by his word real in your life? Is your obedience to whatever Jesus calls you to impacting the people around you so that you are persecuted? Then you are blessed. 
Um, Lily has always been very close to her sister. Her parents have um, valued their family relationships, and they've built a very close-knit family. And they've been going to church together for as long as Lily can remember. Um, And recently, as a teenager, uh, Lily has come to realize her own darkness of heart. Um, She's come to see her own pretense of being a good person from a good family, especially as she's been wrestling with her competitive desires to excel at school and seen how she has wronged some of her classmates in jealousy. Her older sister and best friend has just come out of the closet. She has declared herself bisexual, and Lily has found herself being the only family member to take a position against it. Lily wants to agree with Jesus that same, se- that same gender, sexual relationships, is not good for her sister. She wants her sister to agree with Jesus, that sexual, that, that, um, uh, with Jesus' ruling and Jesus' word on sexual relationships, and to walk with him and trust him for intimate friendships, without satisfying her misplaced sexual desires. Lily is concerned for her sister's seeming rejection of Jesus' reign. She can't approve her sister's path to intimacy and joy. Her sister has felt rejected by Lily, and her withdrawal from Lily has been devastating. Lily's mother has falsely accused her of being unloving and narrow-minded. Her father has been expressing his disapproval in many subtle little ways, making life very painful for Lily at home. Does Jesus' righteousness, his reign, direct your life so that people around you notice? That they revile you, insult you, look for ways to make life harder for you, say evil things against you, falsely accuse you, maybe of not being truly loving, Or at work or school, of not being truly committed to something success because you want to follow the priorities of Jesus. Are you persecuted? And is your persecution for Jesus' account? In verse 10 and 11, Jesus says, Then you are blessed. You have come into the light of God's blessing and approval. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. So learn to rejoice and be glad with confidence because your persecution is evidence of all the restoration of the kingdom of heaven that will be yours. This is so counterintuitive with what we associate with blessed, approved by God. So when you have doubted whether the kingdom of heaven belongs to you, When you have doubted whether you are blessed, where do you count your blessings? We count hashtag blessed exactly the opposite to verse 11. We think of those who are blessed as those who are powerful and influential with followers, not sidelined. We see those who are blessed as those who are admired, not accused. Those who are desired and friended and viewed, not reviled. Those who are esteemed and popular with the majority, not the few. 
Jesus says the blessed are the persecuted few who are persecuted because they sit listening to him. They walk on the narrow, hard path that his word directs. They build the house of their lives on Jesus the rock, constantly remodeling and changing their lives in response to Jesus' word, which then riles up the dark, stormy world in persecution. So, firstly, we've seen who the blessed are from the change in subject from verse 10 to 11. Blessed are you when you are Jesus persecuted for his righteous reign. But secondly, let's see who the people of light are by looking at the important differences in tenses, right? So when you read the Bible, you must always look for changes in subject because that draws your attention to the meaning and also look for changes in, in tenses. The lines of the poem end with future promises. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. But did you notice that in the brackets of verse 3 and 10, Jesus uses present tense. We've looked at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for Jesus' righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's also look at the beginning bracket now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours now, not only if you are persecuted, but also if you are poor in spirit. Both present tense brackets are exactly counterintuitive. Hashtag blessed, Jesus says, are not those who are rich, full of wealth and worth in spirit. Instead, those who come from the shifty, shadowy crowds into the light of Jesus' words of blessing are those who come to sit in poverty. The hashtag blessed begins at the beginning of his poem with coming to sit at the feet of God's king with your lack of riches in your inner being revealed. Lit up with nothing to offer God. So when we put these brackets together, whose is the kingdom of heaven now? Those who are poor before God and persecuted in the world, in the light of the king. This is a complete change of position. It's a turnaround that Jesus pronounces and that his light actually brings. As they come to sit at the feet of the king and the light of his word dawns on them, he exposes their pretenses of spiritual riches of their own. This is the blessed beginning, where Jesus opens the path to the kingdom of heaven. To come from the deceptive darkness into Jesus' light, to be truly known by the king of God's kingdom, begins in the light of his righteous reign and in the light of our spiritual poverty. And Jesus calls this turnaround before God and in ourselves and before people, repentance. His first sermon in Matthew 4, 17, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This then is Jesus' repentance poem, which begins with poverty in our spirits. Coming to our true position before God is what Jesus' light brings about. And we need to learn to count these repentance blessings because that is actually how Jesus lifts 
our self-deceptive hypocrisy. Jesus brings this turnaround by the light of his word, changing our position and our view of ourselves before God. Well, first of all, changing our, our view of God, actually, by shedding light on Jesus' righteous reign. Secondly, changing our view of ourselves by shedding light on our own poverty of being. And then also of people as they become our persecutors. You see, to be blessed is to be poor, poor in spirit. Jesus lights up our poverty so that we turn away from blessing ourselves. The natural human condition is that we desperately want to bless ourselves and approve ourselves. We call it building self-esteem. Our entire schooling systems is built around this. We want to give ourselves approval, deceiving ourselves into seeing spiritual worth and inner worth of ourselves, building our own self-esteem, pretending that we have inner worth in our deepest, darkest souls. But Jesus lifts our pretense and hypocrisy of riches in our inner being before God. And that is where the path to the kingdom of heaven opens for us. Jesus also turns us away from being blessed by others. Seeking people's approval is a terrible thing to be a slave to. It's a terrible master. I know it well. Wanting to belong to the many. Instead, we face their persecution. So the first part of lifting our dark opposition and self-deceptive hypocrisy is to lift our pretense of riches of spirit, to shine the light of his word and to expose our poverty. We come to sit at Jesus' feet over and over again as we walk along this narrow path in poverty. And in fact, we keep seeing our poverty. This is how Jesus works repentance in our lives. We keep turning from our dark masks of pretense that want to tell us that we are rich and worthy and full in and of ourselves before God. And we keep coming into the light of his word that exposes our poverty. This is where we learn to begin to count our blessings. And ladies, it is such a relief. We don't have to pretend before the father of perfect fullness. God the Father in heaven who is perfect and who has given us his perfect law and who sees everything. His kingdom becomes our kingdom now when we turn to his son in poverty, in the light of his word. So, are you blessed now? Are you seeing your poverty of spirit of spirits? Every time you step into the light of the king's word. And are you persecuted for Jesus' account? Then the light of Jesus' blessing has been shining into your life. As God's righteous, pleasing king's word places us on this narrow path to the kingdom of heaven, truly being known by him, we increasingly see our poverty in spirit. We face rejection, low estimation, persecution, hardships, and false accusation because of Jesus. And he says to us, rejoice and be glad. When this painful light shines in your life now, because you are the people of light, 
when you are poor in spirit and persecuted by others. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven now. And your reward in the future is great. Verse 12. Now, Jesus does not just leave us sitting in poverty, because there's a rest of the poem, right? Um, And then we'll, we'll look at that. But before we do that, we first have to ask the question, how? How can the perfect father's righteous king, who keeps a full record of everything that happens in our hearts and lives, pronounce blessing on the poor in spirit? This is the key question for our entire morning. Okay, so if you've zoned up out until now, please can you zone back in, just like for the next five minutes. Then you can zone out again after that, I don't mind. (laughs) This is the key question for blessing. Now, as is often the case in Scripture, we need to look for repeated words, and we need to look at the context to understand the meaning of what we're reading. And so did you notice that righteousness is the only aspect that is mentioned twice in Jesus' poem, in the middle in verse 6 and at the end in verse 10? And so therefore it's key to understand what this blessed poem is all about. And then in the context of chapter 5 verse 20, Jesus says that their righteousness needs to exceed that of even the religious leaders in the light of every stroke of God's perfect law. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the guys who have given up their lives to study scripture and to travel the world before the car train and airplanes and um, nice, I don't know, what are comfortable shoes, you know, Nikes. Um, So these are people who have actually given up their lives for God's word. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As if that's not bad enough, he then expands God's law in chapter 5 from verse 21 to 48. Those of you who have been reading it will know. He takes some of the Ten Commandments and he expands them, makes them even deeper and broader. And that climaxes in verse 48 of chapter 5 where Jesus says these words, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How? How can Jesus pronounce God's approval and blessing on these people whose righteousness will never exceed that of the Pharisees and who will most definitely never reach perfection? How can people whose hearts and paths are full of darkness which God takes personally because it stems from forsaking him, how can they be blessed by his beloved, pleasing son in this poetic outpouring? Has Jesus done away with God's perfection? Has he done away with God's perfect law that he can make such pronouncements? Or has he abolished God's promises for blessing and curses for disobedience? Jesus answers this key question in chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, where he says that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That is not how he makes these impossible blessings possible for these people in darkness. No, look at verse 17. Okay, this is like the key verse. If you want a key verse for the morning, here it is, memory verse. (laughs) Jesus does it by fulfilling the law 
and the prophets himself. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The foundation and the fountain from which Jesus pours out his poetic blessing is his own fulfillment of the law and the promises for them in their place. Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the prophets is done as a substitute for these people. That is how it is that he can take them from darkness into light. And in fact, we see it so beautifully. Again, remember repeated words. So righteousness, which is repeated in the, in the poem, which was repeated in verse 20, which is why I've taken you where we are now. It was mentioned earlier in the gospel. So it jumps out at us at Jesus' baptism. Listen to what Jesus said about his own baptism in chapter 3, verse 15 of Matthew. As Jesus is baptized, he is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So not listen to it, just look at it. As Jesus is anointed as God's righteous, pleasing king, he chooses to take our place in our need for repentance. John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism for repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus chooses to take that baptism, to to be baptized in our place, in our need for repentance and purification. Our need to have our hearts washed clean. He chooses to be baptized for our sake, identifying with our God-forsaking rebellion in order to purify us, in order to turn us around, in order to give us repentance, in order to bless us. He does this by taking our place. And in fact, for the hearers sitting at his feet on that mountain that day, and for ourselves, the way, of course, this happened, as the rest of the gospel um, unfolds, is when Jesus heads to his death, where he will swap places with them, and where he has swapped places with you and me. At Jesus' death, he takes our unrighteousness, our rebellion against his father onto himself. And his father's measured wrath as the rightful judge, the holy perfect father with a perfect law, is placed onto Jesus in our stead. And then Jesus gives us his righteousness, his perfect obedience and delightful, pleasing relationship with his father. That is how Jesus fulfills all righteousness and the law and the prophets for us in our place by swapping with us on the cross. And that is how he brings this turnaround of repentance in our hearts, giving us his father's blessing now. This is how Jesus lights up his father's forgiveness. It's bought by his substitute death of this pleasing beloved son in our place. This is how the perfect father's pleasing son can pronounce blessing on the poor in spirit now. Jesus is our substitute fulfillment of all righteousness, opening the gate to the kingdom of heaven, of the perfect father in heaven. And so the best picture for me that I've grabbed hold of for this um, sermon is that he is the revolving gate. Jesus himself is the revolving gate to the kingdom of heaven. I can only go in 
to the kingdom of heaven, to a relationship that is restored with the Father, if Jesus starts the turnaround, you know those revolving doors, if Jesus starts the turnaround to take my place and he goes outside so that I can have his place inside. Through Jesus' substitute fulfillment of the law and the prophets for me, his father of perfection becomes my father of forgiveness. It is a total turnaround, giving us a sure and certain entrance through his revolving gate of righteousness. So, lastly, let's look at some of the rest of the repentance pattern, this turnaround that Jesus actually works in our hearts and that he captures so beautifully in this poem for us. Um, because he doesn't just leave us in poverty, but that is where we enter. And let's, so let's also learn to count our other repentance blessing along with our poverty. How else does Jesus describe his people of light who are poor in spirit and persecuted? If you go down the poem, the rest of the poem builds an ongoing pattern of repentance in the hearts of these blessed people of light. The poor also mourn. They are meek. They hunger and thirst, etc. If you look at the poem going across from left to right, it builds on the promises of the future restoration, the future kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. So looking at it slowly and logically, those who are poor also mourn and they shall be comforted. You see, when we know the nature of our human poverty in spirit from the Old Testament, the next heart turn that the Lord Jesus brings for us to mourning actually becomes very obvious. Because we don't just come to Jesus poor, with no inner riches to offer God, but actually we come offering inner corruption. With God-forsaking hearts, we bring our sin, our rebellion, our adultery against him. So when Jesus' great light dawns in our darkness, we mourn our state before him. We become grieved by our rebellion against him because of the transgression that it is against our good, intimate Father God. Have we counted this mourning as being hashtag blessed? Now, we need to be careful here because mourning, this mourning that Jesus is describing is not the same as self-pity. Guilty. So we mustn't be fooled by remorse or simply being discouraged and sad because we are facing another lower view of ourselves once again due to our sin. We mustn't think that feeling sorry for ourselves is the same as repentant mourning before God. False self-pity, which I have to struggle with almost every day, I fall into often. I get stuck in my repentance path at this point often because I fall into self-pity. False self-pity is about myself in my own eyes, and I fold into it often as I see my sin and my poverty. This blessed morning is about myself in God's eyes. Jesus' sermon has repeated reminders that his perfect Father in heaven sees everything 
And so my sin and rebellion is lived out in the eyes of God, affecting the heart of God. And so this blessed morning is grief over the state of my spirit before God as he takes it personally. As I see my own sin causing so much pain and destruction in the people that are closest to me. I mourn it not only because of the pain that it causes and because of how awful it is to see myself in a true light, but I mourn it before God. It is a Godward mourning in the fact that I've transgressed against him. So beware of self, false, a false self-pity, but also beware of false comfort. You know, Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard it said. And um, we've all tried relaxing God's law <laughs> to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Every time the Lord lights up my sin and I mourn my, my, my sin before him, I am tempted to make little laws that, that I can keep that will help me to feel better about the big laws that I've again broken in relationships, in my relationships with others, you know? We're all tempted to, um, to do things that will make us feel better about ourselves and our self-pity. When you see our rebellion exposed in the light of God's word, Let's not try to shrink our transgression against God by making little laws which we can keep and tick off. You know, those lists, (laughs) those spiritual discipline lists that I like to be able to tick off. The light of Jesus' word will continually deepen and widen our mourning before God. Being part of the kingdom of heaven, being hashtag blessed, means that your mourning before God will deepen and widen. And true comfort is only found in Jesus' bestowing blessing on us, not in our own efforts. So we need to keep seeking comfort by repeatedly going back to the cross for his substitute fulfillment in our place, changing our position before his father. And then the promise with it so beautifully is that in future we'll be comforted. The time will come when Jesus will come back, when his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, and when being poor in spirit now and mourning our sin before, before God now will mean that our mourning will end and we will be fully comforted. So repentance in poverty and mourning, along with this certain future comfort, will next take us to meekness. To be meek means to give up using your own strength to change your state before God. To give up using our own power to build improved self-esteem. To stop making rules to do, checklists to, to keep, to build up a false sense of worth and goodness before God and standing before God. Meekness is powerlessness in our poverty and mourning. So beware of a false sense of power. Jesus in his sermon touches on hypocritical public good deeds or religious practical practices that we can be tempted to use to try and build a better self-esteem in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. So don't give in to the temptation or the desire to want inner power to change and to become better. Don't give in to the deception of the world of positive thinking. It remains one of the biggest parts in our bookshops. Books on positive thinking and leadership. Beware of the lies. It's on the meek that Jesus pronounces blessing, not those on not on those who have the power to change themselves. And its restoration promise 
is to inherit the earth. Powerlessness now, meekness now, but a future where we will join God's family business through inheritance of being righteous rulers, of being made good human ambassadors, made in his image with no more forsaking of him, no more frustration. That is what lies in our future. So we can, we can carry the weight of meekness now. In poverty and mourning and meekness, Jesus' light brings us to a hunger and thirst. To hunger and thirst is to desire or need what we do not have within ourselves, right? Food and drink from outside our bodies to, nour- to nourish them. So can you see logically that our poverty and our mourning turns to a hunger and thirst for things to be put right, for righteousness that we do not have. We hunger and thirst for righteousness for ourselves and for the world around us. We hunger and thirst for Jesus' righteousness, his restored reign, and his substitute righteousness in our place. So with Jesus as the revolving gate to the kingdom of heaven, He keeps making these revolutions in our hearts. His substitute on the cross is the power to start this new repentance patterns in our hearts so that over and over again he lights up our poverty. He brings about our mourning of sin before him personally, relationally. He dispels our self-deception of inner power to meekness. And so that we keep turning to his cross for righteousness to become our source of life. We hunger and thirst for his substitute righteousness to come fully on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that it will be filled as he promises it poetically in this future restoration. And you know what? The next thing, logically, because we will receive mercy... When we see God as children of God, when the kingdom of heaven comes fully on earth. It is such a beautiful picture. Now, um, for the sake of time, I'm going to describe the next three uh, workings of, of, of repentance in, in my heart in, in their negatives. It's just the easiest way for me to describe it to you in, in the way that I've seen it working in my own life, you know, because Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So starting with the merciful and starting in the negative, when I am merciless, When I'm unmoved by other people around me suffering and the world's darkness, either by distraction and pain or even by their own sin, especially their sin against me, when I am punitive, vengeful in my heart in response to people instead of merciful, it is because I have forgotten that I myself am poor, sinful, powerless, and yet made righteous through Jesus. Can you see that it's as Jesus keeps working the first four repentance in my heart, first four turns of repentance in my heart, that he keeps, that he, that is the only way 
that, that he can also then keep increasing the next three. When I am merciless, it's because my heart is responding as though I have riches and righteousness of my own, or as though I would have had the power to make a different choice from that person who's clearly suffering. So I'm comparatively positioning myself in my own heart and mind to judge the other person in a way that withholds goodness and kindness. I'm merciless. Because actually, they don't deserve it. Hello? That implies that I do. Mercy, if mercy is not at work in our hearts, it's because we have forgotten that it is only through Jesus that we will receive mercy when his kingdom comes on earth. Um, And then what would a pure heart with pure motives and desires look like in the context of this poem among these people? Surely it is a heart turned and shaped by the Son of my Father in heaven. The perfect all-seeing Father whose kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. And so I see myself increasingly without pretense before God. And I see others without pretense before God. A God who sees all and who keeps a record and who will return for an accounting means that I need to see myself and others as needing Jesus' fulfillment of righteousness in our place equally. That is where what a pure heart would look like, a heart's desire, what it is that we want for people around us, what our heart's desires are for people around us, will be shaped more and more by this need for Jesus to also to be all of our fulfillment, to be all of our revolving gate. And that is the hypocrisy buster. The opposite of a hypocritical heart is a pure heart. Lastly, peacemaking. Peacemaking as people who were God's enemies, adulterous, but whom the Son has paid the price to make God's children. Peacemaking as the prince's people of light amongst people living in darkness and as a person whose warring rebellious heart is being turned around by Jesus. Can you see that, that this, all, all of these um, three work their way out around Jesus' righteousness and his substitute righteousness in our place? And so let's respond to the Lord in prayer because we, we all need these, his help. This revolving door will remain shut and will be stuck if not for the work of our Lord Jesus through all of these steps and all of these repentance turns over and over and over again. This is how Jesus keeps us on the narrow path until his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. So, we desperately need his help. Let's pray. Father, today we are just so aware again of our natural darkness and of our hardness and of the self-deceptive nature of it. We are so aware again of our desire to keep up appearances 
and to pretend that we are good and we have worth in and of ourselves. And um, we are so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you came to open your mouth, to shine the light of your word, to break and to lift that darkness. Lord, we thank you and praise you that one day your righteousness will be restored in full as your kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. Until that day, Lord, please keep lifting the hypocritical darkness in our own hearts by the power of your word. Lord, we are so helpless to do that. Please keep convincing us of our own poverty of spirit before you. Please keep teaching and training us as we live with our own pain and the consequences of our own sin to really see that sin as a trespass against you first and foremost. Help us, teach us to grieve and mourn our rebellion before you personally. We thank you that you promise us full comfort and relief in the Lord Jesus. Lord, please increase our meekness. Please help us to lay down the fights, to give up the fights, to have power in and of ourselves, to change ourselves. Lord, we really need you to build this humility in us. Teach us to hunger and thirst for your righteousness, for a righteousness that is so far outside of ourselves and yet that you came to give us at the greatest cost. Lord, we pray as you keep working these turns of repentance in our hearts over and over again, that you would make us your salt and light. What a privilege that you came to make us your salt and light. Lord, help us to increase in mercy, purity, and peacemaking. These are not um, characteristics that we have and desires that we have naturally in and of ourselves. So please, Lord, have mercy and keep working these works of repentance in our hearts. Lord, help us today and this week to go back to Matthew 5 and to think about all the different roles and relationships that you've placed us in in our lives. To think about the areas where we most struggle to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. And Lord, teach us to turn to you, ignite in us a hunger and thirst for your righteousness instead of for our own glory. We thank you so much that this is exactly what you've come to do and that you've even taught us how to pray for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.